you have mental models that help you navigate life. They uh, help you think through things faster. And what is a mental model? A mental model is simply an explanation of how things work. Uh, mental models help take what is typically complex and it simplifies it uh, so that we can apply the mental model we have to the situation before us and make much faster decisions. Let me give you some mental models that you probably already have. Uh, supply and demand. If you've taken any kind of economics course, you understand that there is a, a relationship between supply and demand. As supply goes up, demand goes down. And usually the price will fall. Uh, on the other hand, if supply goes down, demand goes up and the price rises. And this is a, uh, a mental model that helps us make sense of what is actually quite a complex uh, uh, relationship between goods and services and people's needs and wants. Uh, what about the Pareto Principle? You've probably heard of this, uh, sometimes referred to as the 80-20 rule. Uh, and so this guy named Pareto recognized that uh, 20, that there's this uh, relationship all over the place where kind of 20% of the input produces 80% of the results. 20% of the church people do 80% of the work. Right? 20% of your uh, of your uh, clients will uh, produce 80% of your income. Uh, 20%. So this is this 80-20 rule. Now, this is an important mental model because if you if you have the 80-20 rule in, in mind, the Pareto principle, you're thinking to yourself, what are those 20% uh, items? Because I better not let those things drop because they have a disproportionate effect on uh, my success or the health of the of the organization, right? Uh, there's a here's another mental model, Occam's razor. Occam's razor says that if you have two equally legitimate hypotheses, most likely the simplest is the correct. Occam's razor. Two hypotheses which are both valid, the simplest is most likely correct. And so that's a uh, that mental model can help you do good critical thinking. Uh, one more example, and that's the churn. And this is very important in, in uh, churches. And churn is the idea that um, communities and businesses are always losing some people. Uh, and so as a church, we're, some people are always moving out of state. Uh, some people are dying. Some people might go on and attend other churches. And so there is no such thing, because of churn, there's no such thing as standing still. Uh, you, If you're not bringing people in, you will actually be losing. Okay, So that's a mental model which causes you know, uh, church leaders to be thinking, hey, we've got to always be reaching new people, uh, even to maintain you know, uh, equilibrium. And if we want to grow as a church, we've got to not only replace the people who leave naturally, we need to bring even more people in. So I, I talk about mental models for this reason. When we think about God, we use mental models. We do. Everyone does. 
But what's important is that our mental models are correct, because not all mental models are accurate. No mental model is complete in and of itself. But there are a lot of uh, erroneous mental models out there about God that unfortunately are uh, pretty popular. And so uh, what it does is it means that when people are thinking about God and how God relates to us humans, if you employ a bad mental model, then you think incorrectly about God. Which brings us to our series, The God Who Is There. Uh, this is a 14-week series, and one of the things we're doing is we are marching through the Bible and unpacking the Bible's mental models about God so that we think correctly about our relationship with God. Already we've seen, this is week three, but in week one we saw that the God who is there is the God who made everything. He is the creator. Last week we saw that the God who is there didn't destroy Adam and Eve when they rebelled, but ultimately entered into a rescue mission through uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to see that the God who is there is the God who writes his own agreements. And so we want to have a correct uh, understanding of God. We want to know the God who is there because we want a relationship with the real God, not the God of our imagination, not the God that we've been told about. And boy, I, I get especially um, grieved when I hear of people who are rejecting God, and what they're really rejecting is, is a caricature of God, and not the real God. So we want to have a relationship with the God who is there. Fortunately, uh, thankfully, he has revealed himself, and uh, that res uh, revelation has been preserved for us by God's will and his power in the word of God. And so during this series, we are, we are unpacking the, the Bible and what the Bible teaches us about the God who is there. So before we get into today's mental model about God, I want to just uh, briefly talk about four uh, incorrect mental models about God that you've probably encountered. Uh, the first is the watchmaker. The watchmaker of God. The, the idea that God uh, created the universe, set it in motion, and now he just sort of dispassionately sits back and watches it all play out. Uh, sometimes referred to as deism. If you have this model of God in mind, then you will say, okay, sure, I am, I am um, thankful to God that he made me, I owe him my life, but I don't believe that he actually cares about me individually. I certainly don't think that someday I'm going to give an account to him for how I've lived my life. I don't anticipate, I don't expect that I can pray to him and he'll actually hear me and respond to me, you know, in a, in a particular manner. That's deism. But the problem with deism is how do you square that with the idea that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Or that God entered into a covenantal relationship with Abraham and the people of Israel? Or that God gave ten commandments. The God of the Bible is a personal God who actually cares about us. In fact, the Bible says he knows the number of hairs on our head. And we can pray to him. The Bible says if, if your earthly father knows how to give you bread, imagine what your heavenly father will do for you. 
Well, then there's the mental model of God as an indulgent grandfather. Catherine the Great said, hey, it's God's job to forgive. That's what he does. Uh, but if you have the, um, the view of God as he's an indulgent grandfather, then how do you square that with the idea that God destroyed the earth with a flood or he rained down uh, fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah or he ordered that the Canaanites, because of their wickedness, be destroyed men, women, children, and animals and that ultimately God will uh, send those who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ to hell. That doesn't square with the indulgent grandfather, does it? Others will say, oh, their mental model is, uh, is God is the strict authoritarian. Uh, that God has given us impossible rules. His standard is so high, none of us can live up to his standard. And that's good with God, because frankly, he likes to uh, slap us on the hand with the ruler. That he's just waiting for us to mess up. We can't please him. All we can do is disappoint him, and we all do that. And, and that's their view of God. And then finally, there's a uh, view of God as a mental, uh, the mutual backscratcher. I give God what he wants. He gives me what I want. And uh, this is actually at the root of idolatry. That's what idolatry is all about. I give God the worship that he wants, uh, and he gives me back the health and wealth and good relationships that I want. But the problem with that. The problem with that is uh, the Bible tells us that God needs nothing. And so how do you scratch the back of a God whose back doesn't ever itch? <laughs> right? He doesn't have any itches that we can scratch. He has no needs that we can fulfill. And that's what we are told uh, by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. So here's our first biblical passage. Open your Bibles if you would, Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Athenians. He's at the Areopagus, the kind of the debate center of town. Uh, and he says, you know, I've been walking past your idols, and I see that you're a very religious people. I, in fact, I even noticed an altar to the unknown God. And so the God you don't know about, I'm, I'm here to tell you about. Acts chapter 17, <coughs> verse 24 Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, number one, God doesn't need anything that you and I can offer him. But we need everything from him. In him we live and move and have our being, he goes on to say. Our very life is dependent upon the will of God. And so this is a very distressing truth to uh, the, the heart of flesh, the sinful nature. Because we want to have some power in the relationship. And how do you have power in a relationship when the other person needs nothing from you? You don't have any levers to pull. How do I manipulate God? How can I obligate him? 
Well, the Bible says you can't. You can't. You have no power in your relationship with God. Which is why, if you want to have a relationship with the God who is there, you come empty-handed. You come with humility. It's not two equals in a relationship. It's the creator and the creature. And what we're going to see in, in our text today is that uh, the God who is there is the God who writes his own agreements. He dictates to us the terms upon which we can have a relationship with him. And if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to come into that relationship on his terms. You have to relate to him the way he, he has instructed. So in preparation for today's message, I asked you to uh, read Genesis chapter 12 through 22. This is the story of Abraham. And in the story of Abraham, we see this principle um, lived out, that God writes his own agreements, and that Abraham... Uh, as an example to all of us, receives and uh, walks uh, with God according to God's own terms. So we see this in a number of ways. Number one, we see that Abraham did nothing to deserve the glorious call of God upon his life. And that call is found in Genesis chapter 12. So turn there if you would. Genesis chapter 12. First couple verses. We read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, by the way, his name didn't get changed to Abraham until he was 99, but at 75, he was simply Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is a, an incredible call. Uh, anybody who makes life hard for you, I'm going to go against them. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great, you're going to have lots of descendants, heck, the entire earth's going to be blessed through you. That's an amazing call. Abraham must have been uh, Abraham must have been an, an amazing guy. What did he do to deserve this favor from the Lord? He must have been so pious, so righteous. And then you read and find out, wait a second. Up until this moment, he was an idol worshiper. He didn't do anything to deserve this. The call of God upon Abram was just out of the blue purely rooted in God's uh, sovereign grace, his choice to, uh, to uh, bless Abram. In fact, we're, we're told this by Joshua many years later. Joshua is talking to the people of Israel. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, he says this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and gave him offspring, his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and I'll not. 
Isn't that amazing? So here's Abram, uh, an idol worshiper who is serving other gods, and then God comes to him and says, I am calling you to come follow me, and here's what I'm going to do in your life. Next we see God's sovereign grace in, in the fact that Abram added nothing to the terms of the call. So Abram, you, know, you read the story, God is just saying, here's what I'm going to do. Now go do this, because I'm going to do this. And uh, Abram never, he doesn't add anything or take anything away, he just obeys. Uh, he never says, okay, that's a great starting place. I love it, I love what you're bringing to the table, God, but uh, I got a few, I want to, well, let's just alter this agreement a little bit. I have some additional items I would like. I'd like to uh, influence this agreement that we have a little bit. So you bring what you have, I'll bring what I have, and, uh, and we'll have a great arrangement. No, he just receives God's terms and walks in them. And then finally we see something incredible, and that is that God puts himself totally on the hook for the fulfillment of the call. It's not dependent upon Abraham's obedience. It's amazing. It's dependent 100% upon uh, God's own character and faithfulness. And so turn, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 15. And this is the story. Uh, oh, Genesis 15. This is, this is a very interesting story. I'm going to restart in verse 7. God's speaking to Abram. He says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he's talking about the land of Canaan. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now what is going on here? Well, it was, uh, this is not unique. This, uh, this, this happens sometimes in the ancient world when two uh, parties wanted to make a covenant with each other, enter into an agreement, they would sometimes cut up an animal and put the animal's parts on two sides, and then together they would walk between the animals, and it was uh, a very graphic way of saying, thus it shall be done unto me if I do not fulfill my side of the bargain, or the agreement, right? But now here's what's fascinating, though. You get to verse 17, and we read this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
And uh, I, I failed to read verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So Abraham is sleeping. And God walks between the animals alone. And that is very significant. Because it's God saying, I take total responsibility to fulfill the covenant. It's not dependent upon uh, Abraham's righteousness or even his obedience. God had chosen to bless the whole earth through Abram and his offspring, which, of course, we're told in Galatians is Jesus Christ. And that was not going to be at risk. God had decided to do that, and he ultimately did that. And, and our, our own failings couldn't get in the way of that. So how do we relate to a God who doesn't need anything from us? How do we relate to a God we cannot manipulate, we cannot obligate, and yet, because he is a God of love, he chooses to be personally in relationship with us. And he chooses to make great offers to us, right? Well, you trust and obey. It's that simple. There's that song. Trust and obey. Sing it with For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's that simple. And is that hard, right? But that's what uh, Abraham does. He trusts and obeys. And it didn't come automatically. He learned to trust God, largely through the, uh, the promise of Isaac. And so when Abram was 75 years old, God told him, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And um, I think 13 years had gone past, and no children. And so now uh, Abram's in his 80s, mid-80s, uh, Sarai's nine years younger, uh, and they're getting, she gets desperate, and she concludes, well, God must not be intending to give me a child. So she hands her serving girl, Hagar, over to Abram and says, oh, why don't you have a child with her? And, we, and he does, and that's Ishmael. And now Ishmael is, I think, 13 years old. Abram is 99 years old, and God shows back up and says, uh, next year, Sarah's going to have a child. And Abram laughs. Abram laughs. And then Sarah, when she hears about it, she laughs because she's, you know, she knows I'm not supposed to have any children. I'm way, we're way past this. We're in total miracle country, and God does a miracle. And at 100 years old, Abraham has Isaac. And, uh, and it's a miracle. And so they learn, Abraham and Sarah learn, that when God says he's going to do something, he does it. And he can perform a miracle, and he will perform a miracle if necessary, in order to fulfill his promises. And so they learn to trust God because God is faithful. Which then sets us up for the radical obedience. And there is a direct link. We are called to trust and obey. Hebrews uh, uh, 11.6, I think, says, In order to please God, we must believe that he exists and that he uh, rewards those who diligently seek him. You're not going to follow God unless you believe that is going to benefit you, and that God will reward you for your obedience. 
And so uh, Abraham gets to this point in life where he's like, God, God can do miracles, and he will fulfill his promise, and he's promised to me descendants, and he's promised to make me a great nation, and now God has told me, take Isaac, your, your only son, the son whom you love, and go sacrifice him. In other words, you kill him and you burn him, like a burnt offering. And, uh, and that's the, we read that earlier. What does Abraham do? He, he goes and does it. All the way to the point where the knife is in the air and he's about to plunge it into the body of his son, and the angel stops him. And here's what we read. Now we're in Genesis chapter 22. Verse 12, or verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And of course, today we know it was provided in that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life for the sheep on the cross. And it was provided the, the, so that we wouldn't have to die. Christ died in our place. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declared the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Notice uh, the Apostle Paul points out in Galatians that the word offspring there is singular, not plural. He's not talking about all the Jews who were ever born. He's talking about the one descendant who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that all the nations of the earth are blessed. And so Abraham is our example, uh, one who trusted the Lord and obeyed, and obeyed without reservation, right? Obeyed to the point of absurdity. Abraham did not understand what God was doing. We learn in the New Testament that Abraham reasoned to himself, God can raise Isaac from the dead. He's promised that he promised that through Isaac he would create a, a great nation. And how's that going to happen if, I, if Isaac's dead? And God fulfills his promises, so he can bring Isaac back from the dead, I guess. That was how he had reasoned. And so, here's a challenge to you and to me. Are we going to trust God and obey? Even to the point of absurdity? Even to the place where it doesn't make sense? But that's, where, well, that's when it actually gets down to the rubber meets the road, right? It's easy to obey when you see the reason why. It doesn't require faith 
What requires faith is when you're in a place and you say, I don't see how it's in my best interest to do what God tells me to do in the Word. But I'm going to do it because I trust God. And you know what? In my experience, usually down the road, your eyes are open and you, see, you, you get to see why that was better. And which, of course, builds your trust. And it's this wonderful cycle. But that cycle doesn't happen in our lives unless we trust and obey. And then we get insight and we're like, oh, that worked this time. <laughs> Do it again, we do it again, and then you, you do that for you know weeks and months and years, and, and then trusting and obeying becomes much more uh, natural and automatic. You know, the pressure is off when you live a relationship with God where you just trust and obey, then you're not having to try to manipulate, you're not trying to have to figure it all out. You don't have those. You don't have to have those periods in your life where, hey, maybe you should take Hagar and, she, and God will fulfill the promise through her, right? They're trying, that, that is Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out, trying to make sense of how he's going to accomplish his, his promise. So just living a Christian life where you're just like, I'm going to trust the Lord and obey, that is a pressures off kind of relationship. It's simple and it's uh, it is refreshing. So God writes his own agreements. What does it mean? It means we must come to God on his terms. That's what it means. Let me say that again. It means we come to God on his terms. God will not relate to you in a, uh, in a special way. There is a gospel it is the good news for every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, and it's the same gospel for me as it is for you. And that gospel says, repent of your sins and put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, and follow him for a lifetime. And there is no other way to have a relationship with God. If you want a relationship with God, and you do, you have to do it on his terms, which are spelled out in the word of God, unambiguously. Gospel of John, chapter 1, here's what we read. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, talking about Jesus' birth. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, here's, here's the promise for you and me. Here are the terms that if we, if we are willing to uh, walk in, we can have a relationship with God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's an amazing promise. And the, the terms are actually easy. Very easy. But it requires humility. It requires a posture that says, I'm the creature, he is the creator, he dictates the terms, I accept them, I trust and obey, and the result is sins are forgiven, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, tons of brothers and sisters, life everlasting with God in heaven. Will you come to God on his terms? 
certainly that's necessary to become a Christian, but you know what? The entire Christian life is lived that way. We are humble before the Lord, we trust Him and obey Him, and we live life uh, according to His terms, which, as we know, are because God designed us, and He knows what's best for us, and His, His rules, right, His commandments are always in our best interest. Will we trust and obey? Let's pray.